Our scripture this morning is from the 19th chapter of Acts, verses 1 through 10. And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is the word of the Lord. Ninety-eight, thirty-one, fourteen, and five. Ninety-eight, thirty-one, fourteen, and five. Uh, Luke has no problem, as you remember, through our journey in Acts, letting us know that three thousand were added to their number. No problem reminding us that many were added that day. No problem telling us that. Twelve men came and believed and were baptized. It's not that I think Luke is just a numbers guy, that he somehow doesn't care about the story or care about the names. No, obviously he does. He does. That's why Luke and Acts are so long. I mean, how do you try to encapsulate all that Jesus said and did? How do you try to say everything that happened within those first few years in the history of the church? It's just not really possible, but he shared some. He shared some numbers, he shared some stories, he shared some names. But you guys know how it goes. You try to share like an inside joke with somebody that's not there, and maybe you even communicate it perfectly, and that person that's hearing it just says, that's funny. They smile and say, that's funny, which is code for, that wasn't funny, but I love you, okay? Okay. Uh, it's just, you, you do that, I do that. So if I ever say that's funny, forgive me, I do love you though, so remember that. Or it's like trying to share like some really impactful moment that you had or saw or experienced somewhere and you try to tell somebody and you say all the right information. You use perfect details and you remove the unimportant ones and you, you say it well, but there's just, there's something that they can't feel. You have these memories and immediately something within you is stirred. A little bit like what we do on the Sunday after Youthquake. Somebody gets up here and tries to tell a bit of what we experienced for a week in the mountains of Colorado together. Each year having its own unique flavor, its own special, unique group of people that came. We just try to remember. And we try to share a little bit of what was. 
I think of the 98 students that came, many of whom are here in their new gray shirts. I think of Elle, wherever she's at, who came to Morgan and I on one of the last nights and just crying, smiling, crying all in one, saying, I want to give my life to follow Jesus, to be baptized into this Jesus thing. I think about a conversation on the road with Robert. Justin, I, I know that I want to rededicate my life, but does that mean I need to be rebaptized? Because I was baptized when I was seven, but I just know God's doing something in me now. I can see myself in a group of freshmen and sophomores who make <clears throat> interesting choices at times. <laughs> I can think of our seniors who are moving into a new role as leaders in this youth group. We're going to be challenged and given more and more opportunities over this next year as they transition into a new stage of life. I can see and I can hear our graduates pouring out their hearts trying to share what God has taught them over these last few years. 31 and 14. 31 parents and small group leaders gave of their week their time, their energy. Fourteen people went as our cook team into the mountains of Colorado with a big yellow Penske truck with food for over 300 people cooking off of a generator in a big metal pavilion. I will never forget Clay praying over his daughter and Ginger praying over her daughter and just being overwhelmed with gratitude for faithful parents who love their children well, who have raised daughters who love Jesus most. I'll never forget Darby sharing his heart. A new member of our fellowship coming and serving faithfully and just in tears over the gratitude that he has, that he got the opportunity to come and sweat and cry and bleed and climb 14,000 foot mountains. I'll never forget the hard work that Joe and Tara put in to make this happen. I'll never forget Aaron Lowe and Heather Maston, small group leaders who have been with their group for years. So many churches, you don't know, but so many churches struggle to find a couple of volunteers, let alone a plethora who are willing to sacrifice years of time, energy, and sanity to work with students. I'm overwhelmed the first night just looking around at my old youth ministers, second fathers of mine who are there, Drew and Drew and Paul and Scott and Max and Morgan and Aaliyah and Kelsey and Jennifer and so many others, the Whitebrokes, coming to serve the Lord, to do whatever it takes to help students know the story of God to know our place in the story of God. I'll never forget the five, five mosses who drove up the mountains for a few stops to throw up, drove back from the mountains with a few stops to throw up. I'll never forget Amy being willing to come with her family up to the mountains because she knows that Drew has been equipped and called to preach the story of God to a group of 300 people in Colorado. I'll never forget some of the things he said that 
we're called to not only know this story, but to love the story, to be changed by the story of God and to continue the story of God even now. I'll never forget something that he said during one of the sermons that was both a weight upon my shoulders, but also quite freeing. That I can't, that we as communicators of the gospel, that Morgan and I, that the ministers here, that you as followers of Jesus will never save a soul. I can preach as clearly, I could live as perfectly as possible, but I am not the one who saves a single soul. I preach the truth. I am called to preach about Jesus, but the Spirit working within the believer is what is the difference. Because we see it. We see on faces. We hear through words. We discern the actions of people. To try and comprehend whether or not that is somebody who has the Holy Spirit within them or not. Somebody who's a disciple or somebody who is dead. We see it from the stage. We see it in Sunday school. We see it on youth trips. There's a whole wide range of people. Ranging from dead, spiritually dead, outside of life in Christ. Some who are just immature believers in Christ. Some who are mature but going through a really difficult time in their life. This whole range of people. And yet we are called... We are called to hear the truth, to respond to the truth, and to speak the truth. And so today we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, and we're going to be talking about how those who hear the truth are supposed to respond to the truth. Because how you respond to truth reveals the truth of who you are. I believe that wholeheartedly. Because I've seen it. I've experienced it, and I read it. How you respond to the truth reveals the truth of who you are. So let's go ahead and take a look. Open up to Acts chapter 19, verse 1. And it happened, while Apollos was at Corinth... Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. Apollos, if you were here last week, not in Colorado, you heard Jim teach on Apollos, that he was there in Ephesus preaching a biblical message, but an incomplete one. A biblical message, but an incomplete one. And this lady named Priscilla and her husband named Aquila needed to come and teach a more excellent truth. He needed to correct the teaching of Apollos because it was the truth. It was just an incomplete version of the truth. And then Paul follows up as Apollos goes to Corinth. Paul comes into Ephesus and we're encountering one of the most significant churches in the New Testament. Which, by the way, spoiler alert, the city now, a heap of ruins. A cool archaeological site that maybe you'll get to visit someday. Heap of ruins. Somewhere between the time when Paul and Apollos went there and preached the truth, and now something happened. A lot of things happened. Earthquakes, a shifting of soil, all kinds of regime changes. And the gospel being proclaimed, responded to or resisted. 
And Paul is there in Ephesus, and there he found some disciples. In Acts, as you probably know, disciples almost always means disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus. 26 of the 28 times, it's very explicit that disciples is meant to be a follower of Jesus. Somebody who is putting their life to follow, hope, uh, put their trust in, have their allegiance in Jesus. But here, in one other place, it's actually a disciple of Paul, and here we don't really know. We're getting ready to see that these disciples might be like disciples, but immature ones. Or maybe they're disciples that Paul thought were disciples, but actually upon hearing them speak and seeing the way they lived, had some concerns, some questions. Because I don't know about you, that's happened to me. It's happened here. Some have fallen into the trap of thinking that you just come to church and you sit in the pews and that means you are a disciple. Maybe growing up in the Midwest and at least the past becoming less and less true today, if you just go to church, that means you are a disciple. Maybe Paul ran into the synagogue and he saw these people listening and hearing and he assumed that they were disciples, but upon further evaluation and discernment, that wasn't the case. Today, we're going to look at some very specific things that mark a true disciple, a true follower of Jesus, and those that mark those who are dead. What's the difference? How do we discern those things? Verse 2, and Paul said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not heard that there is a Holy Spirit. The first obvious marker of a disciple is that they have the Holy Spirit within them. Okay, some of you are like, is that supposed to be obvious? Because I can't tell all the time. Because you're right, sometimes it's difficult to tell. Because there's probably people who have been disciples of Jesus for a long time, but they are spiritual infants. And the fruit that should be well on its way to development hasn't quite come to fruition. Or maybe there's people who claim to be followers of Jesus And they've been followers of Jesus for some time, and there has been fruit in their life, but they're going through a season of dryness, a winter of the soul, a darkness, something that happened to them or a poor choice they made of falling into temptation. But then, obviously, there are the dead. Those who hear the truth, do not respond well to the truth, resist it, are stubborn, and even speak evil of the truth. One of the markers for the followers of Jesus is to help discern that. So, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? And they said, no, we haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. Wow. 20 to 25 years after the Holy Spirit had descended at Pentecost, there are people in generally the same-ish region that have not heard there even was a Holy Spirit. And these just aren't like pagans randomly way out there. These are people who are having some kind of a relationship with a synagogue around people that have at some level heard are proclaiming truth. And they haven't even heard there's a Holy Spirit. I can remember walking around Japan last year with Drew and Brady and Jim and others and just thinking to myself how crazy it is that there are millions, if not billions of people on this earth who have never heard the name of Jesus This man that, like, I've given my whole life to follow, who my entire existence is based upon. 
And they've never even heard his name. And so I read this passage that we've never even heard of the Holy Spirit. I'm a little bit shocked. And then I realize that's true still today. The people estimate of the close to a billion people here, two billion people have not heard of Jesus. Two billion, that's crazy. Two billion people have not heard the name of Jesus, have not even known that there is a Holy Spirit, which is why it's so important for those of us who hear the truth and respond to the truth, speak the truth. Verse 3, and he said, Paul, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Our next marker of a disciple is kind of obvious. Disciples who put their hope in, trust in, allegiance toward Jesus are baptized into Jesus. That's just the like, natural, prescribed, expected next step for those who put faith in Jesus in the New Testament. It's not like it's secret. It's not really even that controversial. People who put faith in Jesus are baptized into Jesus because they're like dying to self. They're being buried with Christ and they're being raised to a new life and have this mysterious attachment to the person and work of Christ so that his perfection, his goodness, his sacrifice, his blood is put on us, given to us. And even though we're sinners, those who put faith in him actually get the benefits of what he alone has won. New life now, eternal life forever. That's just how the New Testament prescribes it. So Paul asks two obvious questions. Do you have the Holy Spirit? No. What's the Holy Spirit again? Oh, gosh, okay. So what were you baptized into? Well, John's baptism. Okay, now I know where to go. Now I know where to go. John's baptism, as he's going to explain, is important. It's necessary, but it's incomplete. It's incomplete. Um, read verse four with me. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance. Turn, a changing of mind, a changing of will. That's what John was trying to do. He was one crying in the wilderness. Hey, by the way, God is still here and God will bring judgment upon all who do not follow his word. And one is coming who is establishing his kingdom, who is going to fulfill all the promises of God. He's coming, and I'm preparing the way for him, telling the people to believe in the one who has come after him, that is Jesus. All of John's life was proclaiming Jesus, preparing the way for Jesus. In John 3.30, he says, Jesus must increase, he must increase, and I will decrease. So John's baptism's good. His trying to convince people to repent in light of who God is and what he's done, what he's promised, and what he's fulfilling as Jesus is good. It's just incomplete. It's what Apollos had a problem with. He knew John's baptism, but he needed a more excellent way. These people are disciples of something that they have something that's missing, incomplete. And John says that you guys need a correction. Paul says this. Let's read verse five. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Two things. First, this is the only explicit example in the New Testament of rebaptism. That's something that's actually fairly common in today's church world. But how do you know if you're supposed to be rebaptized? So I was seven or eight. I hear this all the time. And by the way, it was me too. I was, I was seven or eight when I put my faith in Jesus. 
I remember, like, I believed that, and I, I, I truly, I decided I wanted to follow Jesus. It was, it was genuine, but, you know, now that I'm 13, or now that I'm 15, or now that I'm 21, or now that I'm 30, I've had a moment where God has moved in me, and I don't know how to respond. Help me understand how to respond to what God is doing within me. And I think, biblically, this is kind of how you're supposed to go about that. If somebody already has the Holy Spirit within them, they're producing fruit in accordance with the Spirit, then you don't need to be rebaptized. You don't. You've already put your faith in Jesus. You've already been baptized into Jesus. The Spirit is producing fruit in you. You're just having a moment in which you're growing. By the way, every couple of weeks, I see a group of these boys and girls who grow like six inches. Six inches. One of my favorite stories from Youthquake is when, I don't even know if I was born, but uh, Paul Weiss did my parents, renewed my parents' vows up on the mountain at Youthquake. It wasn't that they weren't married, it was that there was kind of this newness, this desire to rekindle something. And what I told Robert, hi Robert, good to see you brother, glad you're here. Uh, what I told Robert when we had this conversation is, brother, you're somebody who already has the spirit in you, I can tell that. You already believe in Jesus. You are somebody who is having a moment in which God is moving and you just need to lean into that. Lean into this moment in which God is renewing something in your soul. It's a rededication. It's a renewing of vows. It's not you weren't saved and now you are. It's that God is doing something new in you and you need to respond well to it. There are sometimes, some cases in which I believe for whatever reason, people are not baptized into the baptism of Jesus and they don't have the Holy Spirit and they were confused for one reason or the other at a young age and now they are ready to follow Jesus, to be baptized into his death, into his resurrection and have the Holy Spirit put upon them. That's probably more rare than how often rebaptism happens. Listen, there's nothing wrong with rebaptism. I, I know plenty of people who were rebaptized as a form of just rededication. It wasn't they weren't saved and now they are, but they just decided as a way to renew my vows with God, I'm going to go through this um, act of baptism. That's okay. That's okay. But here, this is just an incomplete version of it. They had John's baptism. They knew repentance, but they just hadn't really gone all in with Jesus. They didn't know the gospel. They didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And so John, or Paul proclaims the truth. They hear the truth and they respond to that truth. Verse six, and when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Okay, another marker of a true disciple of Jesus is that when they put their faith in Jesus and the Holy Spirit comes upon us and dwells us, we have a Holy Spirit given gift. Maybe yours is to teach or to preach. Maybe yours is to serve and be hospitable. Go read Acts or 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There's a long list of ways in which the Holy Spirit comes upon a believer and dwells them and gives them a unique, specific gift so that you can encourage the body, so you can build each other up, so that we might become mature and complete believers and mature and complete body. But not only that, that we might 
preach and speak truth and serve in a way in this world, this lost, broken, dark world, that we might help spread the good news of Jesus. It's good for us, and it's good for the world. The Holy Spirit doesn't just save us, we talked about this a lot, as a get-out-of-jail-free card. That we might not have to go to hell, and that's kind of the extent of what Jesus did for us on the cross. That it's really just about the benefit of getting to go to heaven, that we don't have to be worried about what happens when we die. No, those things are true, yes, but it's so much more than that. Actually, it's God making you new now. God put his spirit within you and he's making you new in this process of becoming more and more like Jesus and he's given you this unique spiritual gift so that you might build the body and communicate the truth of the gospel in this broken world. That's everybody. Not just Morgan, not just Jim, not just our elders, all who have put their faith in Jesus, who are disciples of Jesus, have the Holy Spirit indwelling within them and have a specific unique set of spiritual gifts so they can build the body and communicate truth to a broken world. Verse 8, we begin to start turning a little bit. Um, first part, first seven verses are Paul communicating truth. They're hearing the truth. They're responding in faith to the truth. And they're continuing the truth by using their spiritual gifts. And then something happens in verse 8. And he, Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. In the first set of the story, we hear that disciples hear the word, respond in faith to the word, and then Act on the word. In this last half, we see those who are dead. They're stubborn. They don't believe. And beyond that, they even speak evil of the way. Two responses to truth. I don't think Paul's saying a different message. No, I don't believe that the Holy Spirit somehow is not powerful enough to do something within these people. No, Paul is preaching the gospel. The Holy Spirit is working. Christ's blood has more than enough to cover for sins, but these people are stubborn. Their hearts are hard. They're resisting the truth. And rather than embracing it and being changed by it, they continue in their unbelief. And even beyond that, they speak evil of the way. How you hear and respond to truth reveals the truth of who you are. That's just, that's just reality. How you hear and respond to truth reveals the truth of who you are. Paul is pretty specific here. You, you see his tactics. He's going to speak boldly. He's going to try and reason with them, and he's going to persuade. I think that's a pretty good template for us as believers who have the Holy Spirit, to speak boldly. Like, we talked a lot about how you are to, as followers of Jesus, like, be willing to speak about Jesus in your schools on your teams, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. No matter the context, no matter who's around, you speak boldly the truth of Jesus, who he is and what he has done. Paul did that. He spoke to individuals. He spoke to groups, both small and large. He spoke to pagan philosophers. He spoke to Roman leaders and rulers. 
and all the while preaching the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done boldly because the Spirit had come upon him and equipped him to do that. And I believe, based on what I read in the Scripture, that you who have followed Jesus and have the Holy Spirit within you have also been called within the field that you have within the context that you have, within the classrooms that you have, within the jobs that you have, within the neighborhoods that you have, to live out your faith and be willing to speak your faith, to be willing to reason with people, as Paul says. He reasoned with them. He dialogued with them. He conversed with them. It wasn't just like this empty transfer of information. Information's important, don't get me wrong. We need to have the right theology as we're teaching the truth, but... He dialogued. He conversed. It wasn't that faith is somehow against reason, that, you know, in today's day and age, that somehow it's dumb of you to believe that there's a God. That somehow you're just not as intelligent as those who obviously know there's no God, because God can't be proven, because it's not a repeatable process in a lab. That somehow faith and reason are at odds, but that doesn't seem to be Paul's take. No, he's willing to persuade, to dialogue, to speak boldly because there's a reason why he believes. He has specific things he can point to because that anchor his soul, that anchor his faith. I know many people in this room I've had conversations with that have a hard time with Jesus, have a hard time with God because they think faith is somehow unreasonable. I have a very close person in my life that doesn't believe that this is true. Just this man-made collection of writings has no authority. It's unreasonable. Not according to Paul's standards. He's going to boldly speak and he's going to reason with people, but lastly, he's going to persuade. This one's kind of where we get uncomfortable. Okay, we, we're okay with building friendships. We, we're, we're fine with becoming friends and going out to lunch with somebody. We're even willing sometimes, some of us maybe, to transfer information. To just kind of, you share your perspective and I'll share mine. We'll be buddies and we'll just kind of continue. That's kind of our evangelism tactic. Just build bridges and see where we have commonality and then, you know, just hope beyond that. Now listen, God can do things with that. The Spirit can work with that. You can speak the gospel over a crowd and somebody might believe, even though you don't have a relationship with that person. It's not that relationships are bad. No, build friendships. And it's not that the transfer of information is bad. No, have the right information and give people the true, the right theology based on God's word. But the persuasion is key. Paul wasn't going to just leave it at friendship. He wasn't just going to leave it at a transfer of information. He wanted to convince them. He wanted to persuade them because he knows that the truth that he has, the truth that God has revealed to him, the truth that we have in God's word in Jesus Christ is life-changing. It's eternal. It has the potential to change someone's story now and forever. And so it's great to have a friend and it's great to share your differing beliefs but until you like put it out there on the table like hey what's keeping you from putting your faith in Jesus because I think it could change your life now and forever I think we're being a little bit cowardly in a world that somehow simultaneously will over the internet speak very hateful things to people and 
be quite rude, to be honest. We have a real hard time having a difference of opinions. Don't talk about money, politics, or religion. That's what I was taught growing up. Not true. We have to talk about it. We have been called to talk about it. God is the real and only God. And at some point, someone will take their last breath and they will come face to face with God. And to know that you somehow had the key for them to have a relationship and you didn't share that key with them is just wrong. It's selfish, borderline wicked. So yes, build friendships. Do that. Yes, share the truth. Know the truth. Get to understand the word. Let it pour into you so that you can speak it truly, but persuade, convince, do whatever it takes to help people understand who God is and put their life to follow him and pray that the Holy Spirit would do the work to bring them to salvation. This text, it's pretty clear. Pretty clear that to be a disciple, we have to hear the truth and respond to the truth. That's a pretty straightforward application that we are to be disciples who hear the truth and respond to the truth, not just once, okay? Not just at our, at our salvation, just not at our conversion. Yeah, we believed in Jesus back then and so I'm good and I'm done. No, being a follower of Jesus is a continuing process of hearing the truth and being confronted with it and responding to it. At Sunnybrook, we call this our repent and believe cycle, really fancy term for hearing the truth and responding appropriately to it. Because I don't know about you, but I'm not a perfect disciple yet. In the eyes of God, yes, I've been made clean, but I've got a lot of room to grow. Spirit's still working on me. I'm not as mature as I will be in five years and ten years. That's just the reality of the situation and there's this large range of disciples from very immature to very mature and everything in between. And we need to hear the truth and be willing to respond to the truth. I remember when I was at college and um, somebody told me a story. He was in the military. He was a little bit older than me and I was a little bit older than some of the students um, when I was there. And he was just talking about what it was like to be in the military, what it was like to go through basic training. And he was just describing like making his bed. And the importance that was placed on perfectly making your bed in a perfect time and fashion. Jeremy, I'm sure, could explain this, um, though you do like to say you were in the Air Force, not the military. That's your quote. That's your quote. Um, And he said the reason for, like, the, the meticulous nature and how concerned they are with how somebody makes their bed is that the details are something of life and death. How do I know if you can obey me on a field with people trying to kill you and me if you can't obey my order to clean your bed? Make your bed in a timely fashion, in a fashion which we have told you to do. How do I know that you have my back as people are literally trying to kill us on a battlefield where things are not going to go as planned all the time if you can't even do something as simple as making your bed? If you can't hear a command and respond appropriately to that command, how do you know that you're actually going to do what it takes, have what it takes? I think that's a pretty good illustration for what it means to like hear the truth of God's word and respond to it. Even these little things that we think, oh, that's not really that big a deal. 
it's fine, I'm better than this person over there, and you know, I'm even actually better than I used to be, I'm cool with this sin, I'm fine with it for now. Like That attitude is nowhere in Scripture. Romans 6 says that shall we go on sinning so that grace may, ab- may abound? And Paul uses strong language which isn't translated very well and says, by no means. By no means. We shouldn't just be okay with certain sins. We shouldn't just be confronted with truth as believers, as disciples, and not respond to it by obeying God and his word. Because the spirit is within us convicting us. He's giving us the power to be able to obey. He's taken away the, uh, the penalty of sin, and now we are to live a life like Jesus's. We will sin. We will fail to fall. And we will fall into temptation, but we have the power to not. And it's important that we do because God has called us to live a life that resembles him according to his spirit and according to his word. Number two, that we expect as disciples to be disciples who speak the truth and actively work to convince people of that truth. Not only do we hear the word and respond to it continually, but we speak the truth and we try to convince people that it is the truth. This isn't just a difference of opinions. This is life or death eternally. That you somehow have the antidote to somebody's deathly disease and you're too cowardly to share it. That I am too cowardly to share it. Don't just keep it to yourself. Share it willingly, freely. Speak the truth. Convince people of the truth. And lastly, lastly, be a disciple. Some of you are already disciples. The first two points were for you. Hear the truth and respond appropriately to the truth. Speak the truth and convince people of the truth. This last one is for those of you who are not. All throughout the book of Acts, Peter and Paul, the disciples, are trying to convince people that Jesus really is the Messiah the Savior of the world who actually died on a Roman cross willingly to pay for your sins, to absorb the wrath of God, to give humanity life and hope and newness and restoration and redemption. And that he didn't stay dead in the grave, but they actually resurrected from the dead so that anyone who puts their faith in Jesus, their hope, their trust, their allegiance in Jesus, get to actually have new life now and forever with Jesus. That you are dying to your old life of sin and being raised into a new life in him. So if you're not somebody who's done that, be a disciple. Come follow Jesus. If you need to reason with us to try and discuss it, we'll be up here after the service more than willing to speak boldly to you, to try and convince you and dialogue with you and reason with you that Jesus is real and that he is your only hope of life now and forever. But you can expect that we will definitely try and persuade you. We may have a difference of opinions, but I'm not going to leave it there. I'm going to ask you to make a decision to put it on the line, to go all in for Jesus. Because those of us who are here, that are in, that we are disciples right now, we're getting ready to have a little piece of bread and a little cup of juice. These things that represent what Jesus did on the cross and the blood that he spilled. And we're going to celebrate his work. And we're going to remember our baptism. And we're going to remember the holiness of God and our sinfulness and continue to go before him in repentance 
as based on his truth. But those of you who haven't, the door's wide open. There's no wall here other than one that you're making yourself. Be a disciple. Follow Jesus. It'll change your life now and forever. Let's pray. God, we love you. and so thankful for your word. So thankful for your people. So thankful for your spirit. Um, despite my sinfulness, despite my stupidity, my stubbornness, my imperfections, you continue to work and move. God, I pray that all who have heard the truth today would respond appropriately. That all those who have never put their faith in you and been attached to the work of your son would do so. And that all the rest of us, whether we are immature or mature, would, would respond well today. That we'd take a step, a step toward you by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.